Whom shall I fear? That song. Well, who are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Our culture right now is obsessed with fear. I mean, today's Halloween, right? This is the holiday that's built around fear, or candy, depending on your perspective. Jill and I, my wife, we were talking the other day how we feel like in the last 10 years, we've noticed so many more Halloween decorations that people are putting up. I don't remember it being this way when I was a kid. You know, maybe people would put up decorations on the day of Halloween, but now it's for the whole month or month and a half ahead of time, people are putting up not fall decorations, but like scary Halloween decorations. We've turned this fear into an an industry, right? It's an entertainment industry of fear. You think about all the horror movies that are made, all the scary Halloween stuff. We're obsessed with fear, and that's one way we're obsessed with fear. There's another way that we've seen fear a lot the last last two years. Fear of, of illness, fear of death has totally taken over our whole lives. We've seen people who are afraid to even leave their house because of that, that fear. And it actually it connects to Halloween in, a, in, in one way. I, uh, there's an article by the Babylon Bee, which if you're not familiar with them, it's Christian satire. It's meant to be funny. So I'm not trying to be political here, just funny. They posted this article this year that said the scariest Halloween costume in 2021 is just a mask of somebody not wearing a mask. And it's funny, right? Okay, we get it. But there's some truth there. I know people who genuinely have fear when they see someone not wearing a mask in public. And so you might be on that side where you're very afraid of that sort of thing. Or you might be on the other side where you're afraid of the government taking away all your rights. Either way, fear is all around us. And as I was thinking about fear, because it relates to Nehemiah chapter 6, where we're going to be today. As I was thinking about this, I, I wanted to understand fear better. And so I put fear into a a couple different categories. And and I'm not saying these are all the categories, but these are a few. There's fear of the unknown. This is why your kids are afraid of the dark. This is why maybe you're afraid of the future. You don't know what's going to happen. So we we understand fear of the unknown pretty well. And and it relates to some of the other fears that we have. But there's other fears. Fear of man. Fear of man. This is not fear of men. This is a fear of other people. And I could summarize it like this. Fear of man is caring too much what other people think about you. And we deal with that a lot, don't we? It's magnified in something like public speaking, which is one of the top two fears. Fear of death and fear of public speaking. Depending on who you are, one of those is in the number one slot. Why are we afraid of public speaking? Well, it's because we're afraid of embarrassing ourselves in front of a whole group of people. And maybe you've never even thought about it like that before, but it's true. Maybe you're afraid of talking to strangers, but how much more is that true when you've got a whole room full of them? And you don't want to look silly or stupid. You don't want to lose your respect, any respect that they might have had of you. We're afraid of other people, but, but it, it manifests itself in other ways too. Think about your job, anxiety. It comes up at your job. And, and whether or not you're a people pleaser, you can find yourself... Wanting to, wanting to make other people happy with the job that you're doing. You want to impress them. You want to do well at your job so other people will like you more. And, and maybe some of that makes sense, but when we take it too far and we care too much what other people think about us, it gives us a fear and an anxiety in life. And then there's a third category of fear, 
It's fear of God. Now this one, there's a couple different ways of looking at it. And I want to dig in and help us to understand this because it's so important for Nehemiah chapter 6. You could be afraid of God or you could have a fear of God. We could say it that way. And maybe you know what I'm talking about. We often, we often talk this way. I, as a kid growing up in the church, you hear, you come across that phrase, fear of the Lord. And you're asking that question, wait, we're supposed to be afraid of God? And what do people say? Well, no, it's not like that. You're not afraid of God. It's, it's fear. It's respect towards God, which is true. And we want to draw a sharp distinction between the, between the two and say, well, fear of the Lord is nothing like being afraid of God. It's, it's about respecting him. But there actually is a connection between them. It's like this. God is who he is, right? So he, God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he's always just. And if that's true about God, if you have not believed in Jesus, if you have done something against God, if you have sinned at any point in your life, you've done something wrong against him, you are under his wrath. And guess what? You should be afraid of him. It's actually the right response is to be afraid of God. But if you believe in Jesus, if you know him, if you know how much God loves you, that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins, to reconcile you to God, to make you right with God once again, and you believe in him, that afraid fear turns to a respectful fear, turns to a right fear, where you respect him, you have reverence, you worship him, you believe in him, because you know how awesome and how powerful he is, and yet you also know that he loves you. And he cares for you. And he's with you. That bad fear turns to a positive fear. I think power tools could help us to understand this a little bit better. I have a table saw. It is an incredibly useful tool. I'm so thankful for it. I've, I've used it countless times on a number of projects. Very useful. Some of you have even borrowed it to use it. It's a very useful tool. My kids are afraid of my table saw. In fact, I have a fear of my table saw. But they're different. You see, my kids, they're afraid of the noise of the table saw. They hear it turn on, and they, they don't want to be anywhere near it. It's really loud. They don't want to be around it. And I haven't taught my six-year-old how to use the table saw yet. And I know what you're thinking, oh, this overprotective helicopter parent not letting a six-year-old use the table saw. But, you know, <laughs> and so they don't know it very well, so they hear the noise, and they just back away. They don't, they don't want to be around it. But my fear of the table saw is a little bit different. I'm not afraid of the noise. I don't particularly like the noise, but I'm not afraid of it. I have a healthy fear of my table saw because I know what it can do to me. In fact, I've had two close calls with my table saw that have really instilled that positive fear in my life. One time was just a kickback. A piece of wood came flying back at me and hit me in the hand, you know, got a little cut, it hurt, and it, it's alarming. Like, what in the world just happened? It happens so fast, you don't even know. And, and so you kind of take a step back, and your heart's beating, you take a few breaths. Okay, I, I want to make sure that doesn't happen again. I need to figure that out. The first time wasn't too bad, but the second time, I nicked my finger on the blade. Now, if you've never used a table saw, maybe you don't understand what that, what that means, but that was probably one of the scariest moments in my life. Because... Even though it was just a little nick, just a little chunk of my finger, not, not even a chunk, but I mean, it bled pretty good. I didn't have to go to the hospital or anything, but I, I knew what could, what could have happened. I've seen pictures. I've seen people. I know people that are missing a finger because of a table saw. And that, I had to take a step back. I had to breathe. And in fact, for the next half hour, I was just plain afraid of my table saw. 
I, you know what, let's just pack this up. Let's put, the, I don't need power tools anymore. Let's just put all of that away. That's how I felt. Now, luckily, I got back on the horse. I started using it again, but I had a different perspective after that. I, I had a, a good, respectful fear for my table saw, a healthy fear. And even though that was a few years ago, to this day, I use my table saw differently than I used to because that always, it always goes through my mind. Yeah, I, I need to be careful. I know what can happen here if I'm not paying attention, if I'm not careful. Now, God isn't a tool that we use, but we can understand that difference between being afraid, an unhealthy fear, and fearing God and respecting and revering him, worshiping him because of how great that he is. And it's important for us to understand that as we get to Nehemiah chapter 6 today. But before we open up to Nehemiah, I want, let's, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would be with us today. God, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. God, that you would soften our hearts, open up our eyes to understand your word, to believe it, Lord, and to understand what it means for our lives. Lord, I pray that, that you would impact us with this worship this morning. God, that we would leave as different people, knowing and following you better. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we've been talking about fear, but now we're going to see how that connects to Nehemiah, because Nehemiah is going to have a few times where he has a choice in front of him. He's going to have a choice of whether he's going to fear man or he's going to fear God. And we'll see what he does in each of those situations. So far in Nehemiah, it's been all about building this wall. Nehemiah has, has come back to Jerusalem to help them rebuild the wall. This is really important for the worship in Jerusalem. The temple was rebuilt, but they don't have a wall. They don't have a secure place where they can worship God. And he's going to help fix that by building the wall. All along the way, though, there's been opposition. There's been people that want to put a stop to it. And we see this especially in chapter 4 when the Israelites actually had to carry a sword in their hand while they were building because of the threat of attack from enemies around them. And so there's this opposition all along the way, people that don't want to see this wall get rebuilt. And we're going to find that again in chapter 6. Enemies coming to, to stand up, to try to stand against Nehemiah and the work that he's doing for God. So let's get some context here in verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 6 says this, Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. Okay, what's going on? The wall is almost finished. It's been a long time. We've been waiting, but the wall's almost there. In fact, the wall part is done. It's just the gates that have not been finished yet. You need gates to have an effective wall. So they're still waiting on those. They're still building those. But they're almost there. And that, that can give you some motivation to keep working hard. When you're almost at the end of a project. Okay, we're almost done. Let's push hard. Let's finish this thing. But it also does something to some other people we see mentioned here. Who else knows that the wall is almost done? We have these three guys that we've heard before that have opposed God's work here. We have Samballot, Tobiah, and Geshem. And these guys do not want to see the wall get built. And so now they are going to work extra hard. They realize time is almost up. We're almost out of options. We need to work as hard as we can to stop them from finishing the wall. And I think one of the things going on here is actually fear. I think they're afraid. It doesn't say that explicitly here, but I think they're afraid of losing their power. They recognize, so they have some power and influence over Jerusalem right now. And if that wall gets rebuilt, they... They might lose that power, that influence that they have over those people, and they're afraid of losing their power. 
they're going to do whatever they can to stop Nehemiah. We're going to see three different times that they try to stop Nehemiah and the wall building in this chapter. And uh, specifically this time, they're going for Nehemiah. Before, they have tried to, uh, they just tried to stop the people, but they've recognized that doesn't work. We need to just go for the leader. If we can stop the leader, we can stop the progress of the wall being built. That's what they're going to do. So we get to the first, the first attack on Nehemiah, and you know what it is? It's a letter-writing campaign. You probably didn't expect that. They're going to write some letters. So let's see what they do. They write five letters total, but the first four all say very similar things. We see it here in verse 2. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. I think that plain is aptly named Ono, Ono, because they're intending to do him harm. You can remember that. So the whole idea is they're trying to draw him out of the city. They want to get him out of the city. We don't know exactly where this is, but we know that it's far away from Jerusalem. They're trying to get him away from the work, get away from leading that, and possibly even to kill him. Says they intend, he perceives that they intend to do him harm. They're trying to kill him. They're going to do whatever they can to distract him or destroy him so that this progress on the wall is stopped and they will win. They try to get him out, but it doesn't work. What is he, how does he respond to them? He says this I sent a messenger saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? You see, he perceives what they're doing. I'm too busy. I don't have time for this. I'm not going to come meet you. I've got work to do here in this city. So he's not going to give in. So they send him a fifth letter, but this fifth letter is a little bit different. It's an open letter. You've probably heard of open letters before. These days, they get posted on the internet. And the whole idea behind it is that you want to send a letter to somebody, but you want everybody else to read what's in it. So it's usually not a nice letter. I'm sure you could do that, but usually you're accusing someone of something, you're, you're calling them out, you're exposing something wrong in their life, and you want everybody else to know about it. And like I said, we do that on the internet here. Nehemiah didn't have access yet to the internet, and so he wasn't able to do it that way. So this goes back to the original open letter, which actually helps make sense of that, of that phrase. So usually letters were sealed with wax and stamped with your ring, your signet ring. It was unique. So that when somebody got that letter, they knew, okay, no one else has read this. It's confidential. I'm the only one who's reading it besides the person who sent it. But if you don't seal it, you just roll up that letter and send a messenger to take it, anyone along the way could have read it. You have no idea. And so that's what Sam Ballot does. He sends this open letter to, to Nehemiah, and his purpose is everyone will read it along the way. And what does he say to him? This is verse 6. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you, also, you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. He's still trying to do the same thing. He's still trying to get him to come out, get him to come out of the city to stop the work. Maybe they're going to try to kill him. That's the whole goal with it. But now he's added a threat to it. And he kind of, it's kind of soft. He's kind of like, I'm just trying to help you, man. But you see through it. You see what he's really doing there. He's accusing him of trying to make himself king. And there's a few bad things that could come from this. Number one, this word could get back to Artaxerxes as he mentions in there. What if the king hears about this? 
And although Nehemiah had a good relationship with the king, this has happened to Artaxerxes before. He's been betrayed, and so he might believe it, and he might come and put a stop to what's going on. But even if the king doesn't hear about it, still, he's sowing discord, dissension among the people. The people in the city, if they hear about this, if they read it, what are they going to think? I mean, we thought this Nehemiah guy was a good guy coming and, and rebuilding the wall for us, but now it seems like maybe he's just trying to set himself up as the king. Nehemiah has no right to the throne. He's not in the line of Judah, in the line of David. He can't do that. And so he would just be making this power play to be the king of the city, to be the king of the land. So you can see how that might cause some problems for him. <clears throat> what are they trying to accomplish here? We mentioned stopping the wall. We actually get, verse 9 tells us exactly what these enemies are trying to do, and it gives us an understanding of the whole chapter. This is the main, the key verse in the whole chapter. Verse 9 says, For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. The whole goal here is to scare them, to frighten them, to make them afraid so that their hands will drop from the work, so that they will stop working. What does Nehemiah pray? Lord, strengthen our hands. Nehemiah has a choice here. They're trying to make him afraid, and he has a choice. Does he give in to fear of man? Does he fear these men, what they could do to him? I mean, there's a real threat on his life here. Does he fear them and what they could do to him? Does he fear the other people and what they're thinking about him? Or does he fear God? Does he trust God? Does he respect God? Does he know the work that God has given him and he's going to continue to do that work, trusting in him? He's got a choice. What choice does he make? We see this in how he responds to that fifth letter. In verse 8, he says this, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. I love that verse. Isn't that great? (laughs) It's a great quotable thing. You can send that to somebody. Hopefully you don't have to, but... (laughs) He, not only does he deny what's happening, but he even puts it back on him. You're making this whole thing up, Sanballat. It's not true. But, oh God, strengthen my hands. He's not going to let these enemies distract him or destroy him from the work that God has called him to do. He's going to keep working, keep pushing forward to try to finish this wall. That was the first attack. Nehemiah had a choice, fear man or fear God, and he chooses to fear God and continue on with the work. Now we get to the second opposition, the second attack on Nehemiah. And this one's a little bit different. He ends up in this man's house named Shemaiah. And this guy, he's, he's a little sketchy, as you'll see. And there's some question about whether he is even supposed to be there or not. But he, he calls Nehemiah, come to my house, I want to talk to you. And, and he says this to him. Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Now, I don't know, you and I read that, and and that actually sounds pretty reasonable. Like, there are people trying to kill Nehemiah, so maybe he should go hide. Maybe he should go protect himself. Like, that kind of makes sense. But there's a few problems with that. Number one, Nehemiah sees through this guy. He knows what's really going on. In fact, he says it in verse 12. He says this, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had, anou- he had pronounced this pro- the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Once again, what, are the, what is the goal here? They're trying to make him afraid. 
So he's not going to listen to this advice because these enemies have hired this guy to say this. So that was the first problem with it. The other problems are, number one, he's telling him to run away. Well, what happens if Nehemiah runs away? We've already seen this before. If he runs away, that the work is probably going to stop. They're not going to continue on without him. They need their leader to keep building the wall. And if he runs away, the hands will drop from the work. He won't do what God has called him to do. There's another aspect, because he gives him advice to go, into, go hide yourself in the temple. Well, the only place that he can hide himself in the temple is in the holy place. And Nehemiah is not a priest. He's not allowed to go into the holy place. If he goes into that holy place, it's offensive to God. He's breaking God's law. But also, anyone who sees him go in there or come out of there is going to be questioning. Maybe they're going to start believing those rumors. We heard he's trying to set himself up as a king. Now he's trying to be a priest. Who is this Nehemiah guy anyways? And maybe they'll stop trusting in him. Maybe they'll stop building the wall. Once again, Nehemiah, he's got a choice before him. Does he give in to the fear of man? Being afraid of what these men could do to him, the threat, or, or other, what they're saying about him, what they're trying to create this dissension among the people. Or does he fear and trust God? Does he know what God has given him to do, and does he stay with that and do that? Well, what does he say in verse 11? But I said, should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. Nehemiah takes a stand. Even though there's a threat on his life, he's going to trust God with his life, and he's going to keep building that wall. He prays again. We saw that prayer before, but oh God, strengthen my hands. We see another prayer here at the end of this paragraph. Verse 14. He prays, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Nehemiah prays against his enemies. He's going to entrust God with them. He's not going to do something about it. He knows that his job right now is to build the wall, so he's not going to take time to deal with them. God, you deal with them. I entrust myself to you. And he's going to keep building the wall, going to keep doing this work that God has called him to do. And guess what? It pays off. The next verse, verse 15, says this. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. The wall is done. It is finished. This work that we've been looking at for the last several chapters, it's finally done. And we can rejoice. The wall is done. This is great. And it only took 52 days. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I have a hard time really understanding the scope of that. I mean, it sounds impressive, but... You know, we've seen some drawings, we've seen some pictures of the wall, and so we can kind of get an idea, but what does it really mean to build a wall like that in 52 days using hand tools? It, it's hard to understand what that would mean, but we actually get a glimpse into it in the next verse because we see the reaction of the people around them. It says here in verse 16, And when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. There's two really important things here. They were afraid. Now, what's been, what's been going on this whole time? They've been trying to make Nehemiah afraid this whole time, and who's afraid now? They're afraid. And why are they afraid? Because they look at the work that's been done, and they know that there's no way humans could have pulled this off. They actually give credit to God because it's such a miracle that they would finish this wall in 52 days, and they recognize this must have been done with the help of their God. 
And now these people have a choice. Their choice is a little bit different than Nehemiah's, but they still have a choice. In light of what God has done, are they going to be afraid of God? Are they going to stay on that wrong side and be afraid of him and continue to oppose him? Or are they going to fear God and worship him and come and ask, what must I do to be saved? You can probably guess the choice that they make. They're going to choose to be afraid of God, to continue to oppose him. And like I mentioned, there's three times of opposition, three attacks in the story. And we've only done two so far. The third one comes after the wall has already been built. Even though the wall is built and you think, oh, everything's going to be great now, there's still opposition to this work. Verse 17, right after we hear about the wall being built and what the enemies think about it, says this, Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by an oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, the son of Jehoan. Basically, that whole section there is just showing that Tobiah is very connected to the wealthy and the powerful in the city. He's got connections through marriage, relationships. He's connected to the wealthy and power in Jerusalem. Why are they doing this? Why are they sending letters back and forth? We see the answer in verse 19. And they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Once again, what's the goal here? What are they trying to accomplish? They're trying to make Nehemiah afraid. And I think this is a big one with that fear of man. What is, what is Tobiah trying to do? I think he's flexing a little bit. He's trying to show Nehemiah, I'm, I'm still around you can build that wall, but I'm, I've still got my hands on this city. I'm connected to the rich and powerful. They have oaths with him, and he can get them to do whatever he wants. That's what he's trying to show Nehemiah. And, and what are they doing? They're spying on Nehemiah for him. They're telling him everything Nehemiah has done. Not only that, but they're coming to Nehemiah and saying, hey, come on, Tobiah's, Tobiah's actually a pretty good guy. You know, you should, you should figure this out with him. Look at all these great things he's done. Tobiah is trying to get back into the city. There's a physical wall barrier between him and the city right now. He's still got some influence, but he's trying to get back in. And I want you to think about this. I mean, this could be a hard decision for Nehemiah. Because this, this, once again, this fear of man. Tobiah is wealthy. He's powerful. He's got influence. And, and a lot of times, even if we know someone's bad, there's a temptation to want to make that wealthy, powerful person happy because they have power and influence over our lives. And so we, we, often, we often still try to please them even if we know they're not a good person because it makes our life easier. And Nehemiah could be faced with that same temptation. Man, you know what? Okay, fine, Tobiah. If you'll stop bothering me, just, you, can, you can have a place in the city. Just don't cause trouble. We could see how easily he could end up doing that. And he's got this choice. Does he give in to the fear of man? Or does he choose to fear God instead? This time, we don't see what Nehemiah says. We see what Nehemiah does that makes the difference. This is actually found in chapter 7. We've got to go through a, a, a few verses in chapter 7. So, <clears throat> the wall's been built. He set up the doors, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites had been appointed. Basically, things... Things are coming together. The gates have been put up. They're appointing the right people. And now he needs to appoint a couple other leaders to help him to, to run Jerusalem, to help him to rule over Jerusalem. And it says, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. So I want you to imagine as he's accepting resumes for these positions of leadership in Jerusalem, what is he looking for in a good leader? 
Is he looking for someone tall and and strong and handsome that will be a good leader for the people? Is he looking for someone that is, is a really hard worker, that's productive, that will get stuff done? Is he looking for someone maybe that's connected politically, that has some of these same connections that, you know, connected to the wealthy and powerful? Are those the things that he's looking for in a leader over Jerusalem? No. We find there's two characteristics they're important about these leaders that he appoints. It says here, um, towards the end of verse 2, For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Faithful and God-fearing. That's what Nehemiah was looking for. He was looking for somebody trustworthy and someone that feared the Lord. Now, it'd be too easy to read through this passage and totally ignore that. Too often when we see that God-fearing, we just go, okay, he was a good guy, move on. But I want you to stop and reflect Meditate on this for just a moment. What is the theme we've been seeing throughout this whole chapter? Fear. They're trying to make him afraid so that he stops the work. And opposition is still going to come. People are still against because there's still work to be done, even though the wall is done. We'll see that in the rest of Nehemiah. And so who does Nehemiah need to appoint to raise up in order that won't give in to the fear of other people? Someone who fears God instead. In fact, what we find here is that fear of the Lord is the answer to all of our other fears. When we fear God because of who he is, when we respect him and we trust him, when we worship him, we don't need to be afraid of anything else in our life. Fear of the Lord is the answer to the fear of anything else. Nehemiah recognizes that. So he wants to appoint a man who is God-fearing. The last two verses of this section are important as well. It can be easy to think that, okay, so fear of God means sit back, relax, and let God do everything. It can be tempting to do that because he is sovereign, he is in control, we do want him working, and yet fear of the Lord is actually working with God, recognizing that he has chosen to work with humans, and so there's still action that needs to take place. And verses 3 verse three tells us of the action that needs to take place, and I actually want to start with verse 4 because that tells us why. It says, the city, even though the wall's been built, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. There's not a whole lot of people in the city. Um, even though you have a wall, you need people to defend those walls. And so they have to be careful about when they open the gates. And so they give this charge in verse 3. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are stand, still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. Usually, ancient city like this, gates would be opened at dawn and shut at dusk. But he's saying we can't do that yet. We don't have enough people. We'll open the gates just for a few hours in the middle of the day when we've got the people there to guard the doors. Nehemiah recognizes that there's, there's still opposition. There's still enemies there that are going to try to stop the work of God in this city. And they're going to do what they can to work with God to prevent that. Trusting in him, but also living it out and acting on it. This whole chapter, what do we see? We see the enemy using fear against Nehemiah to try to stop the work of God that he is a part of, that he's doing. And he, all along the way, Nehemiah kept having this choice, this opportunity to either fear man, give in to any of those other fears, but especially that fear of man, or to fear God instead. And we saw all along the way that he fears the Lord. He fears God more than these. And that brings it to us, because you have that same choice in front of you. Are you going to give in 
to the fears of this world, the fear of the unknown, the fear of man? Or are you going to choose instead to fear the Lord, to fear God? God has given you a great work to do, and it's not building a wall probably. But there's big picture and there's specific things. The big picture we often say here at church, at Brush Prairie, is our calling is to know and follow Jesus by helping others to know and follow Jesus. That is the big picture work that we have every day. Know and follow Jesus by helping others to know and follow Jesus. And I can tell you right now that the enemy will try and use fear to disrupt, to distract you from that great work. He'll try to use fear of the unknown, that doubt that we have about God. How can I be sure that this is true? How can I be sure that Jesus really loves me? He'll use fear in those ways to try to stop us, to give up, to get distracted from that fear of the Lord. He'll use fear of man, caring too much what other people think about us. How often do we find ourselves not wanting to be open about our faith, not wanting to be known as the Christian around other people because we're afraid of what people will think about us? We care too much what they'll think. We're afraid of being that radical Christian that is always about Jesus all the time, and yet Isn't that what we should be? But it's fear of man that prevents us from living that out day by day. Even an unhealthy being afraid of God can have a negative impact on us. Too often I find myself worrying that I'm not doing the right things. I'm not doing enough for God. Is this what God is calling me to do? Rather than trusting in him. Rather than praying first Asking him to help me and to lead me and to guide me and to do this with me. God has given us a work to do. The enemy will try to oppose it and yet fear of the Lord is the answer to all of that opposition. If you fear God more, if you trust God more, he will be with you. He will give you what you need. He will strengthen our hands to stand up against the enemy. That's the big picture. There's also lots of specific things that God has given you to do. Maybe in this church, serving in this church, working in the nursery, helping out in different areas. God's given you a work to witness to the people around you at work, your neighbor. In what ways does fear get in the way of you doing those things? In what ways does the enemy try to stop you from doing God's work and instead listening to those voices, listening to those fears and bowing to them instead. In the end, we're always going to have this choice before us. Do you fear God or will you fear people? Will you be afraid of what people can do to you, what people think of you? The reality is fear doesn't go away. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's what we do in the face of fear. Fear isn't going to go away. It's still going to be there. It's still going to present itself, but it's what you do in that moment of fear. It makes all the difference. And I can tell you that it takes practice. Just hoping that you do the right thing in the moment never works. How do we fear God? Knowledge of God leads to true, right fear of him. And we know God through his word, through prayer, through coming to church like this, hearing from his word. That is how we know God more. And through that, we will fear God more. And that fear, what does that lead to? What is right fear of the Lord? Respect trust, what does that lead to in our lives? It leads to worship. And that's what we're about to go to here in just a moment, is to worship in song once again. We're going to sing a song called Great Things, and it's such a great way to end 
this topic today, remembering the great things that God has done. Because it, it wraps back around in the circle. The more we remember those great things, the more we fear the Lord, the more we know him and fear him and worship him again. I want to invite you to worship with us here in a moment. And I want to invite you to fear God more than you fear man. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would be with us and that you would help us. God, we, we need you. Um, our hands will often drop them from the work. We'll get distracted. We'll get discouraged. We'll believe the lies of the enemy. We'll give in to fear. And we'll walk away from you, Lord. And I pray that you would bring us back. I pray that you would remind us of your greatness, of your power, of your love, of your holiness. God, that that would cause us to think rightly about you, to know you rightly, which would cause us to fear you, that healthy fear, respect, and worship, knowing you more. Lord, I, I pray that you would give us that right and that good fear in our lives so that we would follow you, that we would know and follow you by helping others to know and follow you. Help us to do that today, Lord. In your name we pray, Jesus.